There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and welcome to Ready To Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. In this episode, I speak to Brother Richard Hendrick. There's a wonderful story in our tradition from way, way back about a young monk who goes to his abba, his elder, and he says to him, you know, I've been doing all the work. Like, I'm doing the meditation. I'm doing the, the, the manual work. I'm fasting. I'm doing everything. And I still haven't found that deep contemplation that you're all talking about. And the abba says to him, come with me. And he brings him up to the top of the hill at dawn. And he looks out at the sun rising. And he says to him, tell the sun not to rise. And the young monk says, what are you talking about? He says, tell the sun not to rise. So the young monk says, don't rise to the sun. And of course, the sun rises. And he turns around to the abba and says, what's all that about? And he said, is there anything you could do to stop the sun from rising? And the young monk says, no. And he said, in exactly the same way, for every human being, eventually the sun will rise. So the young monk says what we're all thinking, which is, then why am I doing all the work? And the abba says, so you'll be awake to see the sun rise. Brother Richard has been a priest friar for over 20 years and he's just released a beautiful book called Still Points, a guide to living the mindful, meditative way. In this conversation, he gives us a fascinating insight into the life of a monk. He also explains the difference between having purpose in life and finding meaning. He speaks of Celtic spirituality, the power of apologising and death in the most beautiful way. It's an episode that will make you reflect on your own life and hopefully enrich it as it has for me. Here it is. Brother Richard, thank you so much for being here today to have this conversation. I'm delighted to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege. 
So let's start with, uh, I suppose, the obvious. Sure. You're a monk. You're yes. a brother. Yes. Um, why did you decide on this life? <laughs> it's, it's the big question everybody asks. Um, and I suppose it changes over the years and with the telling and, and with more kind of uh, reflection as you look back. But yeah. in a short way, I suppose the story is um, I was heading for, for college. I was finishing um, secondary school. Uh, my plan at that stage was to go and study biology and to specialize in zoology. So the sciences, that's what I was heading for. Yeah. And at the same time, I was kind of asking some of the deeper questions, you know, the what's it all about questions. Yeah. Uh, came from a Catholic family, um, not in an overly devotional way, just the ordinary Catholicism of the 70s, 80s. And um, around about that time, somebody handed me a book on St. Francis. And to this day, I cannot remember who it was gave me the book. Okay. So some little little messenger along the way. And I began to read about this man, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, a medieval saint, but someone whose vision is still extremely fresh. Um, someone who believed in living the gospel life, but in a joyful way, in a peaceful way. Uh, most people would know him because of his association with the animals and nature. Yeah. And, and I suppose that also um, kind of reverberated with me as someone who, who was interested in, in the natural world and who found great peace in the natural world. Mm. And I began to ask myself, well, OK, that was great for St. Francis back in the 1200s. But, you know, did, did he still exist somewhere? Was his vision still still around? And uh, in those days, pre-internet, so it was the library and um, the phone book and all of those kind of things and found the Capuchins, the Capuchin Franciscans uh, in Church Street, where I, where I currently live now, actually. Uh, and I phoned them and said I was interested. And they said, well, come in. And, and then they asked me how old I was. And at that stage, I was 16. So they said... Mm, too young, uh, but if you want to come and visit, you're more than welcome to come and visit. So I did uh, and had an extraordinary sense of coming home, um, a, a real sort of spirit movement of just, you know, if if I had been told you could move in there and then I would have. Um, and that's 30 odd years ago now. So um, since then, you know, there have been the ups and downs and the ins and outs and uh, uh, the joys and the sorrows like every human life. But it has remained with me as a sense of home. Uh, and, and that's something that kind of holds me there. Mm. Wow. I, I, I'm trying to put myself in that situation where something at such a young age feels so right. Mm. And that's just what you got. You, you, was it a feeling of safety? This is, wait a second, I, I'm, I'm meant to be here. Not, not so much safety as almost a kind of a, in some way, my soul lived there already. Right. Uh, there was a kind of an echo of some description. It, it's very hard to put it into words, but and, and of course, you know, that's a feeling and feelings come and go. Um, but it was certainly something I found invitational that mm. wanted that I, I felt I really had to kind of um, experience. So I was left with a kind of a decision then. And at that point, um, I went to a friend of mine who was a priest and I asked him for advice and he said, uh, go to college, get your degree, do whatever you're going to do and then look into it. And then I went to another priest who was also a friend of mine and he gave me the exact opposite advice, which okay. was go in now if you can, if they let you uh, and get it out of your system. <laughs> okay. And that way then um, it won't be hanging over you in college. So I said, well, that sounded more logical. Uh, and I applied and went in. At that stage, I was... Uh, 17. We don't take people in that young anymore. Um, what's what's the, the age now? Oh, it would be 22, 23, 24. We'd oh, look right, at okay. beforehand because emotional maturity levels have changed, particularly with young males over the last 
20 years but that's another conversation right um so uh yeah um so were you I mature then at that age well they thought i was okay. <laughs> i passed all of the various tests i mean we're, <laughs> we're we're examined in and out and and not just from a kind of a faith or spirituality end of things but to this day anybody coming in has to pass the psychological and a psychiatric assessment. Really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What are we talking? Sure. Just like interview process almost? Interview, uh, a number of interviews. Um, there would be a full medical done, all of that kind of stuff. Because the life, the, the monastic life is, is it, it's tough. It's tough. It, it's tough physically. There is a certain asceticism to it. Uh, you're living in community um, with with men of uh, all ages um, and and very often uh, all cultures, all nationalities. We're quite an international group, so there is a certain uh, psychological equanimity needed in order to kind of approach the life and and to deepen uh, to deepen your awareness as as part of the life. And then the restriction that obviously goes with it when you come from modern living, sure, as it were. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know yeah. the codes of conduct that you live by would be obedience is really important. Pop, you vow poverty yeah, and not yeah. the obvious one then is chastity. Yes, yeah. I and mean, yeah, that is yeah. for a teenage lad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. really hard? Um, I suppose it, it's interesting. You go in, most people on the outside would think that it's poverty and chastity are, are the difficult ones. Right. Um, actually, if you're if you're choosing to go in, you, you know that you're going to live this way. What's really difficult for most people nowadays is the vow of obedience. Really? Um, because it, it means uh, in, in a world that's constantly telling you to be an individual and to do your own thing and to follow your bliss and all of that kind of stuff, you know, uh, to suddenly realize that you're putting yourself at the service of a community um, is, okay. is is different. And and also that... Um, your you needs know, are secondary? You, well, your needs become integrated to the needs of the community. Mm, so it's okay. about balancing your needs with the needs of others, just as in a family. Um, if everybody does whatever they want, a family is not going to function. Mm. You know, there's a certain amount of give and take. And a so, lot of families don't function. Well, this is true. <laughs> and, and I mean, sometimes we don't function, <laughs> um, you know, so but but there is a kind of a give and take and a constant uh, reference to to kind of reflecting on how am I fitting in? Yeah. And then when somebody comes in, they're not they're not sort of in from the first moment. It's a long period of training. It's about 11 years for us. Um, and okay. it's only after eight years that you would make um, your, your kind of uh, vowed commitment fully uh, at, at that stage. So it's, um, you know, it's a long engagement before the wedding. So there's a lot of getting mm. to know you and the, the, the order uh, also sort of inviting you to get to know them and experiencing kind of a lot of different um, uh, apostolates and work and, and seeing kind of where your talents lie, where your gifts lie within that. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's a very different journey than most people would be on nowadays, but it still attracts quite a number. Yeah. Yeah. From your yeah. experience down through the years, you're saying 30 odd years now as a mm. brother. Uh, have you seen a lot of, of people come and go? Oh, yeah. And we expect okay. to. Yeah. We expect to. Like the, the normal, the absolutely normal rate for those who would come in is about 50% stay and about 50% go. Okay. And both of those we would consider successes yeah. uh, in, in the sense that if you come and you try and you discern through your trying that actually this isn't for me, that's a grace. That's a gift. It's a success. And, and the gift of having lived in community and maybe been trained in these reflective disciplines, you take with you into the rest of life. Mm. Whereas as those who then come in and stay, um, even though like like any commitment, you're committing maybe in a formal way or in a public way, 
the commitment really is is a daily experience it's getting up each day and saying i'm choosing to live this way you know um, and are the days when you wake up and you go not sure about this of anymore. course because right. you're a human being you yeah, know yeah yeah um like if if that wasn't happening there would be something wrong okay because it means you're not actually living with the ups and downs of life properly and being authentic absolutely mm. and, and authenticity in anything whether it's monastic life a relationship a job means there will be days when you stand back from it and go what am i doing at all you know mm. and that's really important to have as long as that's held within a matrix of good deep reflection and self-awareness then that should lead you to a point of either recommitting fully or being clear enough to be able to say, actually, this part of the journey is over for me and and being able to, to deal with that properly. Mm. So after your 11 years, mm. what is the process then of the ultimate? It's a, you know, you're rubber stamped, you're official now. Yeah. Is there yeah. a ceremony? Yes. So so there's after year eight, slash nine it's slightly different depending on each individual everybody's taken as an individual themselves so if some people feel they need longer they receive longer you know um but after after the the sort of eighth ninth year you make your vows publicly um we call it solemn or perpetual profession it's the equivalent i suppose of marriage in that sense that you've you're making your your commitment publicly yeah. um we uh, we would already be wearing the robe at that stage um but uh the vows are, are are made publicly and and um you know like like any celebration there's there's the the formal ritual church part and family and friends would be invited to that and then there's usually a, a meal or a party after that to celebrate that um but it's it's uh it's more about um what happens the next day um so that the, the, you know in, in the next day you you recognize that the practice is about not just the great day of the vows but beginning again each day and formally renewing the vows each day and kind of, you know, recognizing that you're now in a kind of a, a lifetime journey into an inner discipline, an inner experience. Mm. I find it absolutely fascinating and uh, I have huge admiration for you and anyone who, who um, whether it's a calling or it's a choice or is it mm. a bit of both, it's, it, yeah. it, as you said, it, it, it's, it's not easy. Um, and it requires a lot of self-discipline. What would a typical day be like now in your world? Or is there such a thing? Yeah, well, the, I suppose, yeah. I mean, there are certain things that happen every day. So maybe just to go, go through those. So um, I, I get up about 5, 5.30. Um, we have meditation and prayer then silently. Uh, now, uh, I'm thinking 5, 5.30. Is it, the, is it the alarm on the phone going off waking you up or is it the sound of a bell? Do it's, you have... It, it's the sound you, of a bell on the phone. <laughs> oh, okay, right. So that's, that's what wakes. Okay, um, yeah. You know, and, and uh, yeah, we get up, um, silent meditation together. Uh, then we celebrate mass together at uh, 8 o'clock, 8 a.m. After that, we, ha- we gather in our own private chapel and we have some of the psalms together. And then... Uh, some people have breakfast much earlier some people have it round about then but that's breakfast and then you're into work whatever the work would be so at the moment I'm looking after a parish um, an inner city parish called Halston Street so there's a lot of work with that uh, the, all the usual stuff um, baptisms and funerals and weddings and mm. all of those kind of bits and pieces um, and the daily kind of care of the of the parishioners and uh, then I would also do a little bit of teaching and a little bit of, of work with the Sanctuary Spirituality Centre in Dublin that was founded by Sister Stan. So um, on occasion, I'd be teaching courses there as well in terms of meditation and contemplative life. Um, we gather for lunch at one o'clock if you're in the house, if you're there, we've, we've a meal together. And then 
the evening at the afternoon is work again and then you're back to prayer and meditation at five uh, at six o'clock a quarter to six we gather for the psalms again to we call that vespers evening prayer and then uh, the evening is kind of quiet some people would be working we might have evening services uh, you might be seeing people that are that are calling looking for advice or help or assistance in some way there could be other groups going um, usually we would gather um, in, in a we've a sort of a common room a lounge area so we gather just share the day together look at, at kind of what's happened yeah um you know chat over things some people would watch the news or whatever it might be and then uh, there's quiet time in the evening for reading prayer study and i'd normally get to bed around midnight or so so that's the mm. that's the average day yeah okay yeah. so that's not a lot of sleep is it midnight to five you know what i mean no but um I, I suppose it helps i'm a natural insomniac anyway so that's oh, yeah. that's okay yeah, but, yeah. but we also have um over the years of working with meditation uh, meditation begins after a while to actually replace sleep. You're, you're able to rest deeply enough in meditation that it's restorative in a way that sleep actually isn't. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it begins to work with that. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I love yoga, so I love yoga. Sure. Nidra. Yeah. Um, and you do get that feeling yeah. of rejuvenation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah Even yeah. though your awareness is still switched on. Yeah. yeah. I, although I will I will admit that often I can doze. Oh yeah, sure. sure. Have a little we've sneaky all, we've nap. All, we've all done that. But I, I suppose <laughs> any of the meditative disciplines begin to teach you that there's kind of a third way of being. Most people go through their life either awake or asleep. Whereas whether it's yoga nidra or meditation or mindfulness or prayer, what that's showing you is that there is a third state possible for the human being, which is relaxed awareness. And that's what most people long for. You know, they have a deep hunger for that, but they don't necessarily know how to get there. Whereas these particular disciplines offer techniques that allow us to arrive at that place. And and it's very restorative and very healing for people to actually know that they can, um, most of the time at least, if they're not too distracted, they can tune into that relaxed awareness that's a natural state within them at any time. I'm trying to imagine the listener now, because if I'm feeling it, other people are as well, because, you know, that is something that a lot of us, myself included, strive for. Sure. But often we live our lives in autopilot. And it's only when you catch yourself, say if you're driving along the road and you realize you've arrived at your destination and you've gone, how did I get here? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. It's that feeling of where where was I? Yeah. I mean, I'm here and I'm safe. Yeah. And clearly, hopefully everyone else is. But (laughs) I, I don't remember that journey. Well, the functional system is working at that point, you know, and, and as a result, there's a kind of a detached uh, awareness. I wouldn't necessarily call that meditative awareness as such. I think meditation, when it's done right, one is deeply aware of what's going on internally and aware of what's going on around you, but in a, in a relaxed way. Um, yeah, I would imagine like being an autopilot, like even though it does happen, it's it's what I'm trying to say is, I suppose, is it's not necessarily a good thing. What no. you want to get is that sense of aware. Like, do you have that? I am fully aware at all times. Now, is it a training that you, your body, your mind, your I, soul I wouldn't, is used to? I certainly to? wouldn't say at all times by, right. by any means. Um, but I would say there is a depth of awareness that the meditative practice brings, which is with us most of the time. Yeah, and that's nothing special about me. It's literally any human being who does the training will be in exactly the same way, mm. you know. So it's, it's um, and there are lots of people of lots of different traditions and denominations and all of that that I've met along the way who have exactly the same thing because they've practiced. And it, that's the word. It's just when you put the practice in, the, the ability appears then at that stage, you know. We've had a lot of conversations about meditation on this, mm. on this podcast because I suppose I, I'm, I'm into it. 
there are times when I let it slide sure and then and then I reach a stumbling block and then I'm trying to as they say kind of crisis meditate my way out sure, of it sure 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 it's the practice yeah the kind of the you know the daily practice of it yeah. that actually will help you navigate yeah. the bumps in the road sure it's ah. not the panacea or the cure and it certainly doesn't stop you feeling any of the difficulties in fact very often you have a deeper experience of whether it's joy or sorrow I remember teaching one course and there was a, a lady on it and at the end she said you know I, I don't like this and I said why and she said well I came here you know kind of broken and now I'm just aware that I'm broken <laughs> and I said well that's that's exactly what you're supposed to be because it gives you that deep awareness that you can then use as a kind of a, a starting pad or a launch pad to actually begin to change things and operationally change things um, the idea that meditation is, you know, the closed eyes blissed out on a cloud somewhere is the direct opposite from what meditation mm. is. Um, so it's great if you're resting and you get a you, you get that occasionally. That's fine. Most people do receive that kind of occasionally. But really what we're talking about is is beginning to live life from the depth dimension of the being rather than the kind of surface living that most of us live on most of the time. And we kind of have to, you know, most of the time. Um but if we have that depth awareness, we begin to catch patterns of behavior. We begin to catch inner habits. We begin to look at the inner voices that may not necessarily be our own voice. They can be the voice of parents and teachers and, you know, um, uh, people of old that are that are kind of speaking in our mind. Mm. Um, we had one really interesting experience some years ago in the sanctuary where I was, I was teaching teachers how to teach meditation to young people. And uh, we had one little experience we do, which is what we call a mindful piece of chocolate, where we give the children a piece of chocolate or a raisin, depending on what they what they want or what they like. Most of them go for the chocolate. But in these allergy conscious days, we have to have both options. Yeah. And um, they do a very deep sensing experience. Um, most people who've done any kind of mindfulness course will know it. It's a, it's a very deep sensory experience. And we had one teacher who at the end of it, when we were checking in with people and saying, you know, how are you after that experience? She said, I'm angry. And I said, why are you angry? She said, you've just taken chocolate away from me. No, I've just given you a piece of chocolate. And she said, no, chocolate's gone from my life now. I said, why? And she said, I've realized through the sensing that actually I don't like chocolate. Wow, right. She said, my body does not like chocolate. But she said my habit had been she would come home from a busy day teaching in school, primary school. And she said she usually had about an hour at home before her kids would come home. And then, you know, all of the chaos of, of the, 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 uh, the evening would take place. So she said that was her moment where she would sit down and she would make herself a cup of coffee and have a bar of chocolate. And she would just that was her little moment to herself, you know, yeah, a kind of a yeah. good job. You know, I've gotten through the day this far. And she realized by doing it that she had a very clear memory of her mother years ago saying to her, stand still and be quiet. And if you're good, I will get you chocolate. So mm -hmm. the chocolate was the reward from mum for good behavior. I'm a good girl. I'm getting chocolate. That over time became, if I'm a good girl, I have to have chocolate. And that finally became a sensory cue of, if I'm eating chocolate, I will feel good about myself. Whereas when she sat into the meditation, her body actually went, I don't like chocolate. Mm. So we talked with her and we worked with her. It was a fantastic experience because she had really done the deep reflection work and the wisdom that was within her that she had repressed through, um, you know, being too dominated by the previous voices or previous experiences or long repetition of the same behavior that cleared. 
And she decided she was going to go home and have the cup of coffee and she'd find something else to have yeah. with it because she knew she didn't need chocolate anymore to tell her, good girl. Now, we're all like that. We, are, we have layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of behavior that's gone in. Most of us, I mean, pretty much all of us, popped into this world as a blank slate. So everything that we experience as us, at least on the surface, has come from somewhere. So what meditation does, it allows us to slow down enough to be present to that and just ask the question, where have you come from? Mm -hmm. And then the next question, do I need you? That changes lives. Yeah. I'm even just asking myself that right now because that's I mean that's so huge but what's very often interesting with meditation is the stuff that you don't want to see very quickly you realize you know it's probably not you anyway Mm. it generally has come from others I mean I do a lot of work with young people with regard to meditation and what we find is the amount of um you know, pressure, external influence, etc. That that's coming in from media, from from social media, particularly all of that kind of stuff. It's it's no surprise to anybody. It's part of the conversation of of the moment. But we forget that it's actually integrated as self for a lot of them. If you don't have the reflective practice, the reflective gap. So we were finding that um, where we would say, you know, you pick up a book and you read it and you think about it. And you have time to, to think about it or to decide, was it a good book? Was it a bad book? Would I recommend it? Whatever it might be. Whereas the pace of media and particularly visual impression that's coming in for most young people meant there was no reflective space. It's constant. It's ongoing constantly. And so we speak of things like, you know, FOMO and all of that kind of stuff and all of the anxiety that's there about I'm not in charge of the content flow. I don't know where it is. But we have never actually set a reflective practice in place for young people that allows them to actually interact with it on a kind of a value basis. Is this of value to me or is it not? Is this making my life better or is it not? And so it was only when they had experiences of things like um, fasting from social media as opposed to fasting from food or drink, um, which they often find much harder than fasting from food or drink. That was when um, suddenly little lights of awareness would begin to happen, you know, and... uh, they would begin to recognize that actually I might need to look at what I'm letting in. Mm. Um, and again, meditation can help with that as well. I have found that when I've done, say, a retreat, and I've done, mm. you know, number of them down through the years, where um, there was one in particular where, you know, we we voluntarily handed our phones over oh, at yeah. the beginning of the yeah, few yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was I was reluctant. Sure. I struggled with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and by the end, I was almost reluctant to get it back. Yeah. Because yeah. I loved yeah, the space. The space. Yeah. I mean, be. one of the things that we always say is like social media, the internet, all of that stuff. Like it's not good or bad. It's simply a tool, yeah. you know, and it's about how you're using it. Are you using it skillfully or are you using it in such a way that's liable to damage yourself or others? You know, we don't put a chainsaw in the hands of a 10 year old. Um, but most 10 year olds now have access to stuff online that you would never think a 10 year old is ready for or suitable yeah. for. Um, Neil Gaiman, the, fa- the famous fantasy writer, um, put it beautifully. He said, we opened the libraries of the world, but we forgot to put a librarian in place. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the things that we need to sort of learn and we're kind of catching up on is we all need that inner librarian who, who's able to say, this is what's appropriate. This is what's necessary at the moment. This is what's actually going to make your life better. And actually, you're in the wrong section at the moment. You need to be over here, you know. Mm. Um, and, and that's a skill that needs to be learned 
before were kind of drenched in information and in stimuli. I would say most adults even, let alone young people, are completely overstimulated at the moment and are living this life of constant exhaustion because they just can't keep up with anything. So that's why I think when we bring in the meditative disciplines that the great traditions, the great wisdom traditions offer, even if it's just as simple a thing as, you know, switching the phone off and going for a walk or immersing yourself in nature or slowing down a little bit or making sure that those slow moments are in the day, um, that's when we begin to actually allow that reflective capacity to open and, and you get real change for people in that, in that moment. And I mean, I suppose, look, mindfulness has become a buzzword in recent Completely. years. Completely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And this is something yeah. that you have been intuitively practicing since you were probably even preteen, really. Oh, it sure. Like yeah, I mean, I, but we all we all practiced it. Mm. This is the thing. Like whenever I teach adults meditation, I always say you're not learning something new. You're remembering how to do something you've forgotten. Yeah. And this is really important. Like the last trimester in the womb, for example, the baby's brain waves in that last trimester are almost exactly the same as someone in deep meditation. Then we're born and we're distracted ever after, you know, from that point of view. But it is something you you actually did for, for three months deeply. You were already on retreat, you know, ever before you entered this world. Um, and so it's, it's important for us to kind of just regain that skill. Mm. And physically, our bodies are made for it, you know. There's so much research um, at a neurobiological level now in terms of what happens when we slow the breath when we attend to the moment. Like as simple a thing as the prayer posture, which is present in every religion and every tradition, the two hands together, they have discovered that if the two hands come together and there's a slight pressure, the blood pressure comes down. Hmm. I I had a really interesting experience some years ago. I was uh, in hospital for some medical issues and they needed to do an MRI. And um, I hadn't ever had an MRI before, so I was quite nervous about it. And, you know, it was... was, uh, Um, very claustrophobic and all of the things that people go through within it. Anyway, they put me in, they were taking the the shots, they're talking to you. And they said to me then, look, we need to do about 10 minutes of work here, 15 minutes of work. Do you need music? Do you need someone to talk to you? And I said, no, I'll just mind myself. So I just did meditation. I went into the meditative breathing. And about six minutes into it, an alarm went off and they started shouting, we're getting you out, we're getting you out. So I said, okay. So they took me out and there were two medics standing there and they said are you you okay I said I'm fine and they said what were you doing in there so I said I was meditating and one of them said uh, um, you know I told to the other one I told you that's what that's what they were doing so apparently I was unaware of this but the breathing and blood pressure had become so low that alarms had gone off (laughs) in the in the MRI because this wasn't supposed to be normal so we ended up in a great conversation about it but it's just a reminder that our, our bodies have this capacity yeah so if you're involved in something if you're if you have that that relaxed awareness that isn't moving into a kind of a reactive experience um the body will do its own thing and Mm. it will bring you there the mind will bring you there the heart will bring you there and whether you're doing that through movement because there are some people for whom still sitting particularly in the early stages is almost impossible Mm. Mm. so don't move you know do the walk do the hike do the do that kind of kind of thing the gardening that will actually bring you there um But what we would say is if you can get to that point of a body that's kind of touching relaxation, then sit, then be present, Mm. then allow that stillness to be with you. You speak about meaning versus purpose, Mm. as in they're they're not the same. And I think sometimes we confuse the two. 
Yeah. So I suppose purpose can be understood as a, a list of jobs, a list mm. of activities that I need to accomplish in the day. I get up in the morning, I have my, my jobs to be done. I can tick them off one by one. I have purposeful activity and it's it's great. That's fine. It's good. But meaning doesn't come from purpose. And so what you find is people can run for five years, 10 years, 50 years in purposeful activity. And then suddenly they stop. What was the meaning of it all? What was the meaning of the job? What was the meaning of the life? What was the meaning of the relationship even? What we would say is that if you start with meaning, then purpose will come out of that. Mm-hmm. So find your why. Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to call it that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, the, 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 um, the kind of obsession at the moment with finding uh, the deeper experience beneath the surface is is really important. And, I, and it's, it's a very hopeful thing for humanity because every now and then we have this moment in society when people begin to go, hold on a second, we need to look at why we're doing these things. Um, so purpose is, is only ever received really uh, in, in a deep way from meaning. Meaning never evolves from purpose. And so what we would be saying to people is to ask those deep, deep why questions as long as you're pursuing truth uh, we would say within our tradition you're pursuing the divine anyway you're pursuing uh, you know the, the 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 ultimate meaning of all things so as long as you're seeking that and continuing to ask why and part of our own discipline our own meditative discipline is to ask why constantly you know mm. people sometimes have this idea that when you enter a kind of a monastic tradition or something you're sort of leaving you know reason at the door you're checking checking your mind at, at the door and nothing could be further from the truth. You're expected to develop very deep analytical skills as part of meditation. Uh, and those analytic skills enable you then to be able to kind of move in the field of meaning rather than just I'm doing it because we've always done it this way. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I always try and imagine who is listening to this or what sure. might be going on for them. And it's probably a reflection of what's going on for me as well. Sure. And when you're trying to figure out your why, how do you then decide is this a voice coming through me is this is this my ego yeah or is this really me at my core is this what i want you know is is this a true why sure or is this a is this a why wrapped up in something else yeah sure i i think there's there's three little tools that are very useful with regard to this the first is don't jump immediately Mm. Uh, sit with it and sit with it for as long as is necessary for you to become calm and still around it and to see does that why that's evolving does that actually bestow a deep sense of peace of inner peace now there may be um, emotion around it that's fine emotion comes and goes but what you're looking for is something that's bestowing a deeper stability or equanimity than you have felt before now the second thing is Check your why with others who know you and who know you deeply. You know, community is very important. Um, that's why we live in community as, as, as a brotherhood. You know, there is there is wisdom around you. And to try and find wisdom people in your life is really important. Not just the friend who'll pat you on the shoulder and affirm whatever you want to say. Mm. What's really important is the friend who'll check you and will say, you know, I don't think that's good for you. Or, you know, have you thought about it this way? Or will we'll process things with you a little bit. And if you need to go even formally, whether it's to a counselor or a spiritual guide or a therapist or a priest, whatever it might be, have those people in your life that you can actually check in with. The third and most important one of all, I think, is that 
if meaning is going to really move you, then what you'll find particularly is a kind of a path of synchronicity, a path of stability. As you begin to move in a direction that's right for you, one of the things you'll find is that that um, opportunities for that will begin to appear. Mm. Um, you know, you're, we, we speak of kind of being in the flow. In our tradition, we would speak of moving according to providence, recognizing that there is a providence behind all things. And when we begin to cooperate with providence, with the, the, the sort of the divine action that's beneath the surface of life, then we find that things will will flow with us. It doesn't mean you won't face difficulties because very often finding your meaning includes finding the difficulties that will teach you what you need to learn. Mm. Um, but it does mean that behind the difficulties, behind the ups and downs, there will be a deep piece of knowing this is where I'm supposed to be. And that can take years to find, you know, um, just because some, suddenly somebody decides they wake up in the morning, and go, today is the day I find meaning. Not necessarily, mm. but you can begin to put the steps and the circumstances in place to find it. There's a wonderful story in our tradition from way, way back about a young monk who goes to his Abba, his elder, and he says to him, you know, I've been doing all the work, like I'm doing the meditation, I'm doing the, the, the manual work, I'm fasting, I'm doing everything. And I still haven't found that deep contemplation that you're all talking about. And the Abba says to him, come with me. And he brings him up to the top of the hill at dawn. And he looks out at the sun rising and he says to him, tell the sun not to rise. Hmm. And the young monk says, what are you talking about? He says, tell the sun not to rise. So the young monk says, don't rise to the sun. And of course, the sun rises. And he turns around to the Abba and says, what's all that about? And he said, is there anything you could do to stop the sun from rising? And the young monk says, no. And he said, in exactly the same way, for every human being, eventually the sun will rise. So the young monk says what we're all thinking, which is, then why am I doing all the work? And the Abba says, so you'll be awake to see the sun rise. This is the important moment. This is Mm. what the work is for. So there are far too many people finally touch meaning about a moment before they pass from this earth. Far too many people. Now, they'll see the sun rise. The light embraces them. I have been privileged in the life that I live to be present at very, very many deathbeds, you know, conscious and unconscious alike. And the one thing I can say is that there is definitely that moment of meeting the light, of meeting whatever it is you want to call it. For me, it's God, but meeting ultimate meaning in that moment. But we can meet it much earlier because it's ready for us at any moment. The moment we turn around to it and say, I'm here, here I am. Um, the, the oldest meditation mantra in, in the Jewish tradition is Heneni Adonai, which is here I am, here I am. So to say that in, 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 in our interior spirit, to seek meaning in that way, means we will be awake when the sun rises and we'll catch the light and then the light begins to shine through us to others. That's the whole point of the, the work. That's how we find meaning you know, to, to be awake for when the sun rises. And that can sometimes mean getting up at 5.30 to see the actual sunrise, mm. you know. So, mm. yeah, it's to be there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's really profound listening to you speak and allowing your words to really land um, it's something I suppose personally I've been thinking a bit about recently simply because my own grandmother passed away uh, a few weeks ago. And I'm sorry. She, thank you so much. But she uh, lived a very a beautiful life mm. and had a wonderful impact on so many people. And we were blessed to have her as long as we did. She was uh, 102 in 10 months. My goodness. Wow. Mm, amazing woman. Wow. And she took her last breath on the last prayer. Yeah. the priest was giving her yeah and had a very like the, the, a perfect passing well there's there's a very old irish custom called reading a death um and one of the things that people would always be very interested in when somebody died especially an elder like that who dies how did they die what happened what mm. were the last things so seeing things like the breathing out on the last word of, of of the prayer would have been seen as a very great sign that someone had arrived at that place of inner stability inner inner peace inner awareness sanctity whatever you want to call it um so yeah it's 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 a skill that many people have lost because death nowadays tends to be kind of very sanitized and, and very um medicated now it should be medicated when it needs to be medicated absolutely we're not talking about needless pain or suffering or anything like that but the ability to be present and guide people um, into this world and out of this world was something that was uh, a very uh, ancient skill um, that that, that uh, our ancestors had and our elders had. Um, and that also included then not being afraid of death in, in a way that, that many modern people are. And I think one of the things that the meditation or the meditative life, the contemplative, the contemplative life teaches is that death is just a natural part of life mm. and it's only transition. Now, your faith tradition can inform you as to what you think happens after that that uh, transition. But the one thing we're certain of is we came in and we're going out. So the meditative tradition asks you then to meditate both on your coming in and on your going out. And there's a lovely understanding within the tradition that says the one thing that 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 we, we are doing all the way through is, is is breathing. And so breathing leads us from birth to death, because as soon as you were born, the first thing you did was to breathe in. And the very last thing you will do will be to breathe out. Mm. So we exist between the in-breath and the out-breath. So every time we touch our breath with awareness, we're touching that whole experience of humanity, of coming in on a breath and going out on a breath. And no matter who we are, whether we're the, you know, the poorest person on the street or the greatest celebrity that ever lived, we come in on a breath and we go out on a breath. Mm. So I think taking the, the, the wisdom of, you know, of your grandmother and of her passing so near to you at, at this time, um, 
you know, she went out on a breath, but she went out on a sanctified breath, mm. on a prayer, a, a breath as prayer. And that's a great gift. Yeah, that's a great gift. Yeah. Yeah, we were very, very lucky. Mm. And uh, it does make me think about, you know, it, it makes me think about the wise. It makes me think mm. that, you know, you know, what am I doing? How am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Because she was a great example to all of us of what really mattered was kindness, living your life Absolutely. as a kind human being Absolutely. and being good. And um, she made such a difference in, in such a, a gorgeous, simple way. Yeah. And I mean, that's what she basically had it nailed. You know, she she knew what it was all about. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, like, do I know what it's about? Am I, am I, I mean, I know it's a constant learning and we'll be learning to that last moment yep. that we do take the last breath. Sure. And then you wonder, I wonder about, about, you know, I'm fascinated by that book, you know, the five regrets of the dying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, yeah. am I going to have one of the, am I, will I have that moment before I, I take my last breath where, why well, did I, or wish I had, you know, and I suppose I, you want to limit that for yourself and for those you love. A regret is an experience that hasn't become wisdom. I think that's one of the most important things to, to recognize is that there will be things you will do and there will be things you will not do in life, which looking back at you would feel you should have done differently, whether for positive or, or for negative. They will stay with you as regrets unless you welcome them as wisdom. So in other words, they begin to teach you how to be in the future. Mm. So that requires vulnerability. Absolutely. And it also requires an inner honesty. And that's something we grow in day by day, moment by moment. Um, Not everybody gets there, though. Um, I think I, I think everybody does eventually. But it could be that last. Oh, yeah flash yeah before it's before yeah. this life ends sure and then is that not a case of it was too late no no I, I i think everything happens at the time that it can happen for people and so it might be late in the sense that you know you've left a lot of damage behind you or you're you're going in a damaged way yourself but i feel from for, certainly from what i've seen from what I've been present to. In that last moment or that last flash, there is the deepest contemplative awareness there is. And it's extraordinary how much can be healed just in a moment. A moment is infinite. You know, there's an infinite number of, of opportunities just in a moment. Um, and uh, that, that healing takes place, I think, for, for all of us, unless we are consciously resisting it. Um, and there's very, very few people in those moments consciously resist. I certainly haven't seen it. Um, but I believe it exists as a philosophical possibility that somebody can say no to the light. But um, I think once it comes in, once it's once it's received, it's it's there. And the other thing I'd certainly say uh, is is that nobody dies alone. Um, the 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 great fear we can often have of of sort of you know will there be anybody there? Will there be anybody there to hold my hand or to be in the room? other than the medics or the family or whatever it might be. Um, again, just from the privileged position of being at hundreds of deathbeds, mm. there is certainly a moment where the room becomes full. And there's certainly a moment where, particularly for those who are still aware and conscious, maybe not medicated, but um, 
there there is a moment of of awareness that yeah they're they're here with me they have arrived to to receive me or to take me take me with them and um yeah the the, the one uh confidence i can i can say uh, definitively about death is that nobody dies alone mm. so i think that's that's something to to take with us on our journey yeah, yeah absolutely as you said it is one of our greatest fears despite the fact that we can't avoid it mm. it is as as real as it gets we come into the world we leave the world sure. um and often you meet people who have been through life-changing experiences be it maybe an accident where they they manage to to live from it walk away from it, whatever the case may be our diagnosis of of cancer i know in my situation that was my wake-up call when i was diagnosed with cancer mm. it is like your your life is flashing before you because you can't help but go to that scary place of, of course what if but the gift that comes from that mm. and it is a gift and i i'm very fortunate that i'm out the other side of it mm. because i know it can be difficult to have these conversations when you're going through a difficult time but mm. when you are lucky enough to get through it i i see that period of my life as as a blessing sure. because I uh, I got to learn a lot about myself um, and it brought a lot of good to my life and one of the the main the main things is is that is to appreciate being here yeah and how lucky we are yeah um, but that fear that a lot of us possess and I understand why now as a mother mm. I have two children I didn't when I had cancer it's kind of different now again mm. because I know how important it is for me to be here be around even sure. though none of us know what's around the corner we all I know, know that absolutely yeah but um it's it's a different and i have to navigate that also um what are your personal fears are are you aware of any or have you made peace with them all oh gosh no fear is something you work with every day mm. um i think part of being a human being is to be afraid and to work through that experience to a place of of stability or equanimity or, or calm. Um, in terms of fear, I suppose that the, the 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 main fear for me is that in some way I would live this life in an inauthentic way, in, in a way that's that's hypocritical or that that um, that isn't. Uh, actually focused on the meaning behind it all, like one of the things that that um, that is, is a danger and it's constantly spoken to us within the tradition is it's very easy to teach this stuff it's very hard to live this stuff and if you really want to teach it the best way of teaching it is to be absolutely silent and just live it okay so from that point of view that's the best teacher of all you know and we all know those people i mean you mentioned your grandmother we all know those people who are living an authentic life a proper good life um, they don't have to be monks or, or nuns or gurus or teachers or anything else but the vast majority of them will be those uh, dare I say in inverted commas ordinary people because there's no such thing as an ordinary person but ordinary people who are um, living through the experience of their own life but choosing kindness choosing compassion choosing love choosing uh, authenticity uh, and that's something that um yeah, that's the, that's the great example for me. Um, you spoke of your own grandmother. My own grandmother was, I would say, my first meditation teacher, and she would have roared laughing even to hear the word meditation. Right. But she was someone who was present. You know, she yeah. lived presently. Um, she lived deeply. Uh, she lived in tune with the seasons. Uh, she was someone who had a very great discernment around um, people and, and around, you know, the kind of the, the uh, motivations behind people. 
and she taught me an awful lot um, in, in that sense. And it was only, I suppose, maybe 10, 15 years into the monastic life that I was saying, hold on, the concepts I'm being taught here now in very uh, sort of regimented ways. She taught me a long time ago, right. you know, um, yeah. and, and so there's a there's a mysticism of the ordinary. Um, that we can miss if we get too caught up in the um, the kind of esoteric. Uh, the, the the most important thing is to actually recognize that there is a a stability present in the day to day moment. That if we live that deeply, if we search for the why in the ordinary moment, if the if the um, the person the next person who meets me meets kindness and authenticity, then then I'm living it. I'm living it deeply and really at that stage. And that's my big fear. My big fear is that I would fail in that that i would i would uh, miss the, the opportunity for that okay yeah so if you're having a bad day do you try and um you know protect people from witnessing that or do you own it and say do you know what <laughs> not having a great day here I, I think it's really important to be able to say that the, the most contemplative um statement that can be made is i'm sorry because it actually means you have reflected on your behavior. You are aware that something was not right and you are trying to bring healing to it. So it's not just about, you know, protecting. I mean, we all have our bad days. You know, we all have the day we get up at the wrong side of the bed or whatever it might be. Um, and OK, there might be days where it's better to, you know, take off into the mountains for a while and breathe and get your get your your, your rhythm back. But most of us don't have the, the freedom to do that. We're, we're enmeshed in in the ordinary and the everyday. I think having the reflective practices the moments throughout the day where we check in with ourselves where we say look do i need to adjust that what's really going on you know am i irritable is it the fact that i'm having the argument with somebody in front of me that i'm really having with somebody i met three weeks ago you know Mm. or is it is it a case of i'm just hungry or tired or worn out or whatever it might be and restoring the self in those moments is really important but if we have you know if we have messed up um, and I mess up. I've messed up greatly in my life many times, just like everybody has. The the important thing is to be able to reflect on it, discern the wisdom out of it, and to say sorry, to begin again. You know. I know. I know some people who who have a real uh, difficulty with with saying sorry. Mm. Maybe they feel like they have nothing to be sorry sure, about. Sure. Or they simply can't bring themselves mm. to say those words. Yeah. Uh, would you have any advice for people who struggle? with putting themselves in that because essentially again when you're sorry Mm. you're you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable vulnerable but not weak and i think there's uh, the unfortunate thing is that people see vulnerable and weak as synonymous and they're two completely different things yeah sure there's a tremendous strength in the vulnerable person who is able to honestly say here i am we're back to that again here i am this is me in good bad up down you know um whatever however you find me this is how you're finding me um, sorrow also doesn't mean that you become uh, the kind of um, welcome mat for everybody else to walk over. Um, you can say sorry and still retain, you know, your your truth in the midst of, of that. Um, but I, I think recognizing the humility of vulnerability, the strength of being able to say, um, I have messed up, I am sorry, I am prepared to begin again. Uh, and I will make whatever amends are necessary within that in a reflective way. Uh, that's a very, very strong position. And people who find it difficult to do that very often, the ego is is sort of so inflated that they just can't step down from that. Mm-hmm. And so what I'd say to them, if they're listening or if there's anybody out there who's really struggling with it is, you know, begin by saying sorry to yourself. 
Mm. Begin by saying sorry to yourself for the errors that you have you have uh, committed. It may be even the hurts that you have needlessly brought on yourself. And when you've said sorry to yourself and have encouraged yourself in that way, and you've seen how it feels to actually be vulnerable with yourself, then it becomes easier to kind of reach out to others then. Mm, great advice. Great advice. Life nowadays feels, well, particularly, I suppose, I can only speak from my own hmm. little pocket of the world and what's going on for me. And I feel like, you know, it's the classic, not enough hours in the day and you're going from one thing to the next hmm. and trying to carve out a bit of me time is at the moment practically non-existent. Sure. And that's purely because I have relocated uh, from Dublin to Galway trying to find our feet, hmm. uh, small children. It's it's just, it, there's a lot going on. But the importance of taking that time hmm. for yourself um, because often we can be distracted by lots of different things. Sure. What advice would you have for somebody, whether it's children or not? Mm. We can be distracted by a myriad of different things. We can be living on our own and be distracted mm. by a million sure, things. Yeah. Um, but what would what advice would you would you have for somebody who is listening to this and and is perhaps going, I, I want that, but how do I get there? Mm. How do I do it? How, you know, you know, it requires discipline. It requires routine. You know, but mm. what advice would you have for someone to say, this will perhaps help? Yeah. I'd say start with the things you're already doing. So if you begin to say, I've got to change my whole life around, I've got to build a meditation chamber and get the cushion <laughs> and buy the bells and do all yeah, those yeah, things, yeah. never happen. Um, yeah. What's important is starting with, with exactly where you are. So things like deciding for this particular cup of tea or this particular cup of coffee, I'm not going to look at the phone. I'm just going to be with myself and my own thoughts. Um, when you shower in the morning, to be really present to the shower or the brushing of the teeth or the washing of the hands or whatever it might be. Uh, a Buddhist monk friend of mine famously at a, at a retreat uh, when somebody said to him, I'm far too busy to do this meditation thing, asked the poor gentleman, but don't you go to the toilet? And mm. he said, yes. And he said, well, how many times a day do you go to the toilet? And he said, I don't know, five or six times. He said, well, do it, do it mindfully, do it contemplatively. Um, and what he was making the point of was that there is nothing that can't be made holy there's yeah. nothing hallowed that can't be hallowed by by presence martin buber the great uh, jewish philosopher said everything is longing to become sacrament in other words to becoming a, a way of encountering the divine so if we're if we're doing that you know simply and gently rather than in a displaced way a lot of us are doing five or six things at once all of the time you know we're driving but we're listening to something else we're talking to somebody or having a conversation at the same time uh, we're we're going shopping, but we've got the earphones in. We're going for the walk in nature, but we bring the friend or whatever it might be. Now, all of those things are lovely to do at particular times, but to give yourself space. And one of the things that we often uh, lose are what we call transitional spaces. So we run home from work and we're straight into the family and we've still brought work with us. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the practices we used to encourage people to do, especially if they were traveling from a place of work to, to a home place, um, was to stop outside the door, sit in the car, stop outside the door and to take just three cycles of in-breath and out-breath in which we say, I consciously leave work behind me now to attend to the people inside. The difference that makes is incredible. Now, there's a lot of people who are now working at home and from home. So it's almost like, well, before I close the laptop or before I leave the room, that's when I'll do my cycle of, of breathing. Mm. And for those who are with children, um, children are the greatest 
meditation teachers of all because for they sure. force you to be present. <laughs> sure. um, so again, being present to the child when it says I need, I want or whatever, as exhausting as that may be at times, the gift of being present to them is that we begin to see life the way they see it. We begin to experience the newness of things and the experience of wonder. Uh, and that goes with meditation. You know, meditation is about actually being excited and in wonder and awe at the world around us. And a child will show you that faster than mm. anything else. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of us are, are allergic to even hearing the word, but I, I'm going to have to say it during the pandemic, during COVID oh, yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, we had a, a lot of different experiences of that time. Mm-hmm. Some were good, some were not good. A lot of people experienced challenge and sorrow. Some people experienced a lot of joy during mm. that time. And I know for me personally, um, during those early lockdowns, it was it was gorgeous because I got time with my partner and my little boy and there was daisy chains being made mm-hmm. and there were picnics outside and there was banana bread baked and all of that crack. And I'm not trying to paint it as um that it was it was perfect, but it was really good because Mm. it was quiet Mm. and we got to kick back Mm. and switch off and and be Mm. and uh, I found it to Mm. be such a gift Um, so I will always look back at that time with huge fondness and I know how fortunate I am that during that period that I I, I didn't experience pain that other people perhaps had and we all have our own individual experiences of it but um it does make me think of how some people were very uncomfortable with the lack of distraction Mm. and how that in itself Mm. was almost like, and I've spoken to other people on the podcast Mm. about this, that it felt like, and it was actually Tommy Tiernan that said it. He said it was like being on a giant retreat. Yeah. And we were kind of forced (laughs) into being with ourselves Mm. and that some people, Mm might have been reluctant and kind of got on board and other people were like nah mm. don't want to do this mm. what the hell is going on sure because yeah. perhaps had never done it before yeah, yeah and again it's yeah. not a judgment or a yeah or a criticism it's it's an observation um yeah. that there, there were people and, and i mean i did struggle myself of course i yeah, did yeah. but that it was wow this is tough what's this about mm. Mm. um you wrote a stunning poem that became a viral sensation. Mm. It was shared by Harry and Meghan. <laughs> I believe that Jennifer Aniston retweeted it. I remember An- uh, Anderson Cooper on CNN reciting it. Yeah, yeah, like this. This was a big deal. I think it was. It was translated into a load of different languages worldwide as well. It's twenty-eight at the, 28. At, at the, the, at the moment, counting. anyway, and counting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Stunning yeah. poem. I'm not going to ask you to read it now, mm. um, but it, I'm sure if people are listening. If they if they if they're going, what was that poem? The second, the second you read it, you'll remember. Mm. Um, it was one of those that just, I think, it struck a chord with so many of us. Yeah. Um. But now that we're here and we have been talking for some time, it's we obviously have to mention your latest book that has just been released. Still points: A Guide to Living the Mindful Meditative Way. Mm. And I've asked if you could pick a piece that you could perhaps recite for us now that would relate to what we've been talking about and I believe you picked something out sure so the the book itself includes um, sort of instructions around meditation 
uh, from our tradition. It includes poems, reflections, etc. And it follows the course of the year over the four seasons. So the idea being that someone can either follow it along, read a little bit each each week, or just dip into it wherever they can. But for me, poetry and meditation are two sides of the same coin. Um, and I find that one uh, sort of begets the other for me. So um, yeah. very often I reflect on the practice through the poetry and sometimes then the poetry invites me into the practice. Mm. So this little piece is just called Catching Your Breath. Come, sit a moment with me by the road and catch your breath. Or rather, let your breath catch up with you from the place you birthed today as you woke. For rushing into the day, you left her behind, alone. A sacred whisper stirring from sleep at the deep pace of growing things. Too busy to hear her call, you have been without her, exhausted but searching, panting and gasping and empty. Gently now, receive her back into the sanctuary of your heart and allow her to take her throne there once again. Remember then to walk slowly and deeply into the rest of the day at the slow pace of breath. For you do not want to lose her again and feel only the panicked absence of her grace, all while being pulled into the maze of before and after, where she never truly dwells anyway, except as a stranger seeking your return. For she is the guardian of your soul, and she dwells only here, only now, in this precious moment, a gift of divinity hallowing the temple of our being and uniting us with the divine now. Come, sit a while and catch your breath. It's what it's all about, eh? Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah. To have those little moments of just catching up with ourselves, you know? Yeah. Um, we can tend to be living a life in many places at once, not all of them, even in the in this time frame. So it's important to gather, you know, the, the old uh, Christian word for that was recollection. Mm. And if you think of the word, what it actually means is to to collect yourself again, to literally to collect the broken pieces and begin to bring them back into one place in one moment. You know, when we joined the, the order, we were told we had to have uh, to, to cultivate a spirit of inner recollection um, and uh still endeavoring to do that but it's it's uh, it's it's a practice that we can all engage in you know collecting yourself where are you actually living right now and maybe even more important when are you living right now mm -hmm. so it's important just to to find that we actually have an anchor that lives inside us that brings us back into that moment puts the broken pieces together and that's the breath we can we can touch the breath and in touching the breath we're touching now Yes. I think this conversation is going to stay with me for a very, very long time. It's uh, it's been a real gift to meet you and to to speak with you. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it, too. Actually, before I let you go, because I know the book, as you said, you know, it is it is a, it is a guide. It's something you can dip in mm. and out of. And you did mention it there and you said the word Celtic. You do explore our traditions mm. because often I suppose we hear about Eastern philosophy and sure. um, we, you know, we're very aware of other um, 
guidelines in which to live but mm. actually this this land of ours is rich in it oh, itself. extremely extremely deeply i mean we have a, a tradition of spirituality and, and contemplation um that goes back to the very earliest days of of um of, of christianity and even further back into the into the the um uh, indigenous wisdom of of the country and, and both of those in a, in a very unique way overlaid each other and intertwined with each other um Ireland is, is most unusual in that uh, when normally when a, when a new religion comes in, whatever that religion might be, there's struggle and there's war and there's there's, you know, persecution and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it seems from a historical point of view that Christianity very gently intertwined itself with with the Irish native spirituality. And that has continued all the way through. And so many of our customs and celebrations, you know, the 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 celebrations around St. Bridget or around St. Patrick, around um, the kind of uh, experience of nature that the early Irish Celtic saints had. Um, the, 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 uh, the gift that that is to the contemplative tradition worldwide is something that's really only waking up. It's really only, only just being, being acknowledged uh, in, in, a, in a deep way. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think there's something inherently contemplative in, in most Irish people. Um, whether they choose to align themselves with a particular tradition or not, there is there is something there um, that deeply invites us into um, living on that kind of Celtic thin space or edge space of this world and the next. Mm. Um, and it's it's something that uh, I remember an American friend of mine said that he d- he never understood Halloween until he lived a Halloween in Ireland. Okay. Um, and he was looking at all of the old customs and stuff that were there. And, uh, you know, my grandmother was, was again, someone who, who taught me all those customs of kind of how the house should be prepared and how you lit the candles and you put out the, the bread and the water and the salt for the, for the souls that would arrive that night. And that was an instrument of blessing and healing for the rest of the, of the year. Um, and he was totally taken aback by this because his American trick-or-treat style Halloween, even though it has its roots in all of that, um, they they had the, um, the 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 ephemera of it, but they didn't have the the inner meaning of it. Um, and so I think the more we encourage a return to those authentic traditions, the more we can grow in our own particular way of being meditative and mindful and contemplative. What did you grow up with in terms of games? Because I, I actually oh. recorded a, a separate podcast mm. all about Halloween, sure. and exploring the old yeah, Irish traditions, yeah, yeah. Um, and even you know simple games that we grew up playing that are not necessarily played now but I feel like perhaps there might be a little mm. bit of a resurgence of bringing them back sure but the, the learning of the why we did it yeah very you important know, yeah, which was very yeah. interesting as you said like the you know the water and the salt and the earth yeah. and, and you know they were we played them in, in a game form but they had a significance yeah oh, very deep very ancient yeah 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 well, there was all of those things that I mean all of the, yeah. old, the, the everything from the apple bobbing to the mirror gazing to the to the uh um, gazing into the fire and seeing letters and mm. um, all of the the the, um, the front door and the back door. You went to bed that night, but they were unlocked so that the holy dead could pass through and the family could visit. And you know all of that sort of stuff that, that was there. And again, it it was something that taught you that the spiritual world and the earthly world are one and the same. They're mm. not separate realities. Everything flows um, from one to the other. And um, and it also meant that the, the message of Halloween very strongly for me was that you know again talk about, talking about fear it wasn't that the dark was full of of danger or fear it was actually that this was something that accompanied us and was 
present to us and and lived with us and side by side with us. I lived for a couple of years up in Donegal and um, uh, the, the the oneness and the unity of the people there with with the with the land was was a, just a fantastic thing to behold. Um, I remember we had a, a, a fairy fort on the on the land of the of the friary uh, where we were, and it's kept very safe and we we we, we guard it and mind it. Mm. And I was walking with one of the groundsmen who was a, a real Donegal man one day, and I said to him. Um, what about the fort over there? And he said, oh, yeah, we just leave that be. And mm. I said, yeah, no problem. I'm fine with that. Um, and he said, uh, I, I said to him, I said, would the people around here have much, you know, awareness of the fairies? Like, would they would they believe in them still? And he said, oh, no, no, nobody, nobody believes in them anymore. I said, all right, OK. And he said, you don't have to believe in them. They're there, <laughs> <laughs> which is the best Donegal answer you can get. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, uh, and it was very interesting, you know, in the forest up there um, when wood would fall or there was dead wood or dead trees. A lot of people had the wood burning stove, so they'd come and they'd collect the wood. But on two separate occasions, trees fell on the fairy fort and they're still there to this day. Nobody touches those. Yeah. They belong to them. You know, yes, yeah. so I, I think there's there's a gift uh, in our mythology and in our folklore and in our in our spirituality um, that invites us into a very deep way of living if we can return to the origins of those those things. And I feel like perhaps we are more interested in it. You mentioned Bridget first. You mm. said Bridget and you said Patrick. And then I've noticed in recent years as a as a move towards a resurgence to honor the spirit of Bridget more Absolutely. and more. I feel that more. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm not, this is a plug now. It sounds like a plug, but <laughs> we, 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 I have a section in it on, on Bridget because um, I was talking with, with friends of mine who had never heard of the custom of putting out the, the, the Rothrida. Yeah. Because yes. the cloak is spread over the land yeah. on that, on, on that night, uh, the vigil night. Um, and th- there's all kinds of folkloric associations with, the previous goddess Bridget and then Saint Bridget herself and how they they intertwined with each other and how one sort of took on the attributes of the other. Um, and that, if anything, shows the way the Irish did it in their mind, how they brought those things together. I think the cult of, of Bridget certainly shows that. Um, but the resurgence of Bridget at the moment, I think, also speaks <clears throat> excuse me, to a deeper resurgence as well of the importance of, of recognising that we are incomplete if we don't have the masculine and the feminine in dialogue if we don't have the balance of both, you know. Um, and again, the contemplative tradition would be very strong on that because some of the the most important teachers of the contemplative way, the, the ones who have uh, illustrated it beautifully either by their lives or by their writings as well, have been um, the female teachers all the way along. Uh, and that's something that has been neglected um, and, and needs to be brought back into the, the fullness of, of teaching. Will it? I think so. I think it's happening. I think it's happening for two reasons. Number one, um, women themselves are saying it has to and they're discovering mm, them and mm. putting putting it out there, which is really important. And number two, I think, um, like, for example, the tradition I belong to and, and work within is the Franciscan tradition. So we but we have two founders. We have St. Francis and we have St. Clair. Mm. And St. Clair was the one who Francis, um, his from the time of his conversion to the time of his death was only about 22 years or so. Claire lived on for another 40 years and was the linchpin of the Franciscan movement. She was the one that they, you know, when they wanted to know what would Francis have said or how would he have done it, they went to Claire. Okay. And it was Claire who, who lived and dwelt in, in uh, an extraordinary, deeply uh, unitive experience with God um, for, for the rest of her life. And, uh, you know, if you don't have Claire you don't have Francis, you know, it's, it's Claire who brings mm, you, brings mm. you through, brings the, the legacy of Francis through and protects it. So in, in the same way, um, 
if we're looking at the history of Christian contemplation, it's people like Julian of Norwich or Teresa of Avila or Therese of Lisieux or um, Saint Scholastica. Or they, these are these are the people who who actually uh, remind us that um, that the the meditative contemplative experience is often um, more beautifully explicated, more simply taught and lived by the the, the feminine uh, side. Um, whereas the masculine side can have to, has to really struggle with ego in terms of letting go of, of those uh, of those obstacles that can be there to to um, to the real experience of of uh, the depth dimension. Yeah. Mm. I don't wrap up this conversation, but <laughs> I feel like it is time because I know you um, you have another appointment after this, so I, I will wrap it up, uh, but I want to say how grateful I am that you took time to be here today. And this is a conversation that I will enjoy listening back to very, very much. Uh, the very best to look with the book. It's beautiful. Thank and you. Um, yeah. yeah, and I'd like just like to say a formal thanks to the people in Hachette who pursued me and pushed me and, and nearly bullied me into making sure that it happened. So. Uh, they, they, they've done an extraordinary job of design and, and it really is it's it's something beautiful yeah, and I it hope, it'll, hope people will enjoy it yes still points it's called a guide to living the mindful meditative way brother Richard Hendrick thank you so much for being here thank you for having me I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and if you did please share it with your friends or family or you can support the pod in all the usual ways by clicking follow giving a rating or leaving a little comment you've been listening too ready to be real. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.